fascinating short little letter, isn't it? Did you find it? That's the first thing. Are you still looking for it right now? Um, it is there. It's at the back of the Bible. Um, a fascinating letter. Uh, it's, it, I think Jude is a little like that relative or friend we only see uh, once a year or even less if we can manage it. Um, he's a little tricky to understand and a little bit uncomfortable, that relative or friend, and frankly just a bit different. Um, having some strange habits. He might look a bit like this, for example. Um, <laughs> just, I googled weird relative. That's what I came up with. Um, love it. Um, so, we, 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 so we try to avoid this weird relative or friend and maybe only come to this weird relative or friend um, sort of once a year. Uh, and we like to visit other friends to keep things simple and rather not go... That's what Jude's like for most of us. Okay, I think we better take that off. Um, Jude has it all, these strong warnings, strong language, urgent, impassioned pleas, uh, talk of angels, a lot of angels, isn't there, Uh, and God's judgment. He even quotes from an apocryphal text, uh, those ancient books, some of them written between the Testaments that didn't quite make it to our, or what's called the canon of Scripture that we have in our hands today, um, due to authorship issues, uh, due to sometimes even questionable theology. In short, it's a very punchy, uh, definitely worth a read, and as we'll see, makes complete sense that it's included in the, in the canon of Scripture in our Bibles. So, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to need God's help, as we always do each time we open His Word, and, uh, and then we'll keep going. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we do thank You for Your words for us today. Uh, we pray, Lord, as we hear Your words, we pray that we put them into practice in our lives. Uh, we, we pray that we'd heed warnings that we need to hear and that would be encouraged by these wonderful words that we'll get to, um, well, sort of at the end. So we, uh, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. When, uh, when I played country rugby um, in Taree, sort of about 20-odd years ago it was, um, it was rough, right? Very rough. You, if you signed up, you had to be content with the notion that rules are just guidelines, um, each week there was always some sort of dust-up. And we're not talking about what you see today on the TV, the sort of swapping handbags and talking philosophy or whatever they do. Um, we're, um, we're, we're grown men throwing haymakers at each other and men in and connecting as well. Although I do remember one teammate who swung so hard in one fight and he missed and he dislocated his shoulder because of it. He was keen, wasn't he? Anyway... I was a Christian back then and um, I made it very clear to my teammates that I I won't fight but I will play hard and fair. In fact, last night um, Archie was sipping from my um, best and fairest award I won for that year um, as the best and fairest player in the club. So there you go. Um, We've we've got this pewter mug. I sort of brought it this morning, shouldn't I? Anyway, showed it off. It's a bit stained and ugly now but it works. Everyone on the team accepted the fact that... um, that, uh, that, that, that I wouldn't fight. And the people, members of the team would often step in to defend me as well, knowing that I wouldn't throw a punch. Now, one such member of the team, his name was Woz. Uh, in fact, he loved fighting, Woz did. He loved contending for me, fighting and contending. Uh, you could say so much, though, that on one, one particular occasion, he... This guy who wanted to fight me, and I said, no, thank you. Nice offer, but no, I'd rather not. Um, 
might be polite. Um, I think I blew him a kiss at some point. That didn't help. Um, anyway, he, uh, this was, grabbed me by the collar here and pulled, literally pulled me away and I sort of stumbled. And then he went in all swinging and all that as he, as he does. Um, he even told me once that, that he said, he called me GT. I think they called me Tomo actually in the team there. He said, Tomo, you know, I, I train specifically every week so I can fight and prepare, pre- prepare and fight for you. You know, there's a touching moment between me and Was. This is between having a cigarette at half-time as well. Um, country rugby. Anyway, he loved the idea of defending and contending for me. He loved it and he did it with great enthusiasm. He prepared for it, fighting off all those evil opponents from Nambucca and Dorigo and, and Coffs Harbour. <laughs> um, he loved it. And what was did what was did for me actually actually reminds me a little bit of what God's church must do with the gospel. We must contend for it. We must fight for it. That's our task as God's church. Defend it and be prepared to do so. Be prepared to fight for it. Be prepared to contend for it. In fact, it's what we're doing now. For there are opponents who fight against God and his word. We read about them here in Jude. Their mission is to lie and distort and in their ungodliness change the grace of God. Now that's the situation that Jude addresses in this little letter. That's the theme of this little book and where we're heading today. So watch out, be ready, uh, says Jude, and, and be prepared to contend for the faith. So let's start with Jude's greeting. Uh, It's a little different than others you might have read. So it's verses 1 and 2. Now unlike um, other New Testament letters, Jude doesn't call himself an apostle. Do you see that? In fact, in verse 17, he later on distances himself from the apostles. Jude is a servant, we see in verses 1 and 2 there. A brother of James. Now James, that's James the Apostle the brother of Jesus. In other words, Jude is a brother of Jesus. I guess in humility, he keeps that connection with Jesus on the quiet. I suspect, though, his readers knew his background. It's clear that Jude wrote to a church converted out of Judaism. Uh, His frequent use of the Old Testament, and as we'll see, other Jewish texts, uh, tell us that his readers were comfortable with that. They knew what he was talking about. But more importantly, Jude wrote to those who are called, you see that, uh, loved by God and those who are kept by the Lord Jesus. What just wonderful words, aren't they? I love this greeting. Called, loved by God, kept by the Lord Jesus. Jude emphasises their position before God. These people are Christians because of the work of God. Called loved, kept. And in verse 2, he prays for God's love, mercy and peace to be lavished upon them, uh, yours in abundance, I think we read. See, they know, therefore, that whatever trouble comes their way from these outsiders, they will remain loved by God. They will remain, they will continue to be kept by the Lord Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful comfort, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, that whatever comes, whatever adversity comes your way, 
the promise of God is that you are loved by God the Father and that Jesus Christ will keep you. Uh, it's a promise Jude reminds them again of as he closes the letter with his great doxology um, in verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. We were going to finish the um, service today by singing a version of uh, that um, doxology, but I received quite a, quite a fair bit of negative feedback um, when I shared it with my family. One person particularly said, oh, I hate that. And then, the other, and then um, another person before the service, uh, Rod, um, what did you say, Rod? You said, um, oh, that's a bit hard to sing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, so I'm not going to do it. I might, look, if you, if you want a, a special um, audience after the service, I'll come and play it for you. Um, but it's very fast, and it's not the one we sang at 8am, which was the now unto him who is able to keep. You know that one? No, that's okay. We're going to go to verse 3. Have a look at verse 3. After this great encouragement of verse 2, this wonderful words in the greeting, it's on point two, uh, second point in our outline. Um, we see that the Lord Jesus keeps his people. Remember how he, he keeps us? Well, he keeps his people for a purpose. And let's see that purpose. So Jude writes to remind this church, urging them to contend for the gospel in the midst of an urgent situation. So let's pick it up, verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. You see, the grace of God is under threat Jude writes. Uh, the faith, as Jude uh, writes, needed contending for, defending, fighting for. But what is the faith for which they are to fight for? Well, let's notice first that it is the faith. This faith is unique. It's not a faith, it's the faith. It's the word, the, the true gospel, the true good news from God, the word of God. This faith is unique, the gospel, the truth, which led to their salvation. Without this truth, there would be no salvation. Second, this faith is unchangeable. You see, the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, that is, those called, those loved, those kept, from verse 1, followers of Jesus. I reckon this concept is getting more and more difficult for us to grasp. We live in a world that is changing rapidly. And it's hard to keep up. You might feel that sometimes. Yet the faith which saves, the faith that we are to contend for, Jude writes, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, is a once-for-all faith. For all time. You could, you could add that word in if you wanted to, that would be fine. Um, it's easy to assume, like everything else, that the Christian faith must be changing. Hey, everything else is changing around us so quickly. Everything else adapts to culture around us. Why isn't the, why isn't the gospel changed? Why isn't the church changing? Uh, adapting to its surrounds and culture. But the truth we are reminded of here is that the message of Christ dying for the sins of all who believe in him, the message of the resurrection, the, uh, of conversion, the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus never changes. It's a once and for all unchangeable faith. Third, what else are they to contend for in this gospel? Well, it's apostolic. Uh, 
it was entrusted, handed down by the teaching of the apostles. It's complete. It's not a message that we add to. It was a message spoken to the apostles by the Lord Jesus, then written down, and now we have it in our Bibles today, in our hot little hands. It's unique and it's an unchanging message. So it's a message that's worth fighting for, Jude says. God says. And they will need to fight. For this was a very serious situation, as we see in verse 4. Certain false teachers and godless people, that word comes up time and time again, had slipped in among the church and like some polluted toxin staining a watercourse, they were threatening the health of God's church. Jesus called such people wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Paul uses the expression when he writes to the church at Ephesus in 2 Timothy, he uses the expression of people like this as having a form of godliness but denying its power. These godless people infiltrate the church in camouflage, like undercover agents, they secretly slip in among them. Um, I, I, I like this sort of analogy or picture of these, um, uh, these great, you can hardly see them, these great cats of the African plains, uh, the, the cheetah, the lions, you can just see the, the cheetah there poking its head through the grass. They look, they look like they do so they cannot be detected, so they can hunt, so they can kill and destroy. Now Jude says, watch out. He says, watch out and fight against them. Now, can we spot them? Well, how can we spot them? Well, we can. And if notice there, by their behaviour. Again, notice that, you can have a look if you like, notice how many times godless or godlessness comes up. As they misunderstand the grace of God, they treat the grace of God as a licence for immorality. Now, I think later on we get the clue that it's probably sexual immorality, um, but not necessarily so. It is, it's serious stuff, isn't it? We must not get caught up. The church of God must not get caught up in such behaviour. We must call it out. For when such people behave like this, and we see at the end of verse 4, they deny Jesus Christ as their only sovereign and Lord. And Martin Luther put it like this. He said, they regard themselves, not him, as their Lord. You see, instead of focusing on the gospel of Christ crucified, such people and teachers and leaders like these encourage Christians to focus on the self. They, they, they focus on their own gratification, uh, and it may well be sexual gratification. Uh, focus on wealth and personal gratification, even on their own health. But the comfort in all this is that God is still in control. That's why we sung some of those songs, songs this morning. Um, though his church is under threat... God is in control. And the condemnation of these godless people was written about long ago, verse 4 tells us. And as we'll see in a moment, the Old Testament predicted judgment of such people. So God will deliver his people and judge those who attack his church. So this was an urgent situation, Jude writes about. And in many ways, in today's church, it is an urgent situation that we need to respond to. But God will judge such behaviour. But he says, watch out, don't get caught up in it. So... Um, verses 5 to 7, uh, why the urgency? Let me just have a drink of water for a minute. So with the use of three, uh, three examples, what Jude does, Jude, Jude encourages his readers to remember God's judgment. Uh, remember God's judgment and remember God's deliverance in the past. 
you see, the Christian faith, it's about history. It really is. It's about what happened in the past and what happens in the future. But it's, about, it's a faith of history and we learn and we are warned from the past, from what God has done. So first, verse 5, Jude says, Remember what happened to the Israelites. So verse 5, Though you already know all this. So in other words, remember that they know about the Old Testament, they know about the stories, they know about the Exodus and so on. He's quoted something in a minute. I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. I think no doubt they're Jews referring to the generation who did not pass into the promised land because of their uh, faithlessness. Uh, so God, so judgment awaits those who do not believe and, 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 and take advantage of the grace of God, he's referring to. Now second, remember what happened to fallen angels. Rightio, strap yourselves in. First angels reference. There's a couple more. Um, who had something good, it was a blessing and a joy, but they abandoned it. They rebelled and their judgment would be inescapable and inevitable. So look at verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, something good, but abandoned their own home or dwelling, some translations say, these uh, he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. So it's clear that Jude's readers, I think, would have been well-read, right? Uh, not only in the Old Testament, but also in, these, in Jewish literature, uh, popular in the day. In verse 14, uh, you can skip down and look at that in a moment if you want to, but Jude quotes from the Book of Enoch. See that? It's a text they were clearly familiar with. Now, the Book of Enoch was written, Enoch was written between the two Testaments. It's one of those um, apocryphal books. And it, it's because of authorship, we're not sure of the author, and also some other theological questions, um, it hasn't found its way into Scripture. Now, there's every chance Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch here in verse 6 as well as later in verse 14. It's not clear he's quoting from the Bible, um, and many commentators also argue that. But the point is that if the certainty of final judgment is true for angels... Who have these ones who have rejected God's lordship and have become immoral, how? Don't know. We don't know. How horrifically true it would be also true, true for those who teach such immorality in the church of God, in the church of Christ. That, that's, that's really the point making being made. Okay, the final thing they need to remember, looking back, it gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about that in, um, in uh, Genesis. In verse 7, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So it's strong words, isn't it? And it gets stronger in a minute, let me assure you. But if you remember Hebrews 3, Hebrews 3, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. It's a bit like that. He quotes Psalm 95 and says, Do not harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. So these episodes serve as an example that God is serious about sin and this is serious in an urgent situation. That's what he's doing. So, friends, we must never underestimate, I think there's, there's particularly two pressures which come to us as followers of Jesus in God's church. The first is that we're tempted to excuse and eventually accept that which the world around us accepts in terms of behaviour. Um, sexual behaviour being the hot topic of the day. Not only questions of homosexuality and church leadership, 
but also the pressure to accept sex before marriage that is rife today in God's church. The other pressure is that we begin to accept uncritically what some Christians and supposed Christian leaders do and gradually bow to peer pressure to the extent that we begin to justify actions that would have been unacceptable not that long ago. For example, watering down the covenant of marriage, whereby marriage is, as on, is only as long as we feel we love each other, or marriage is, or we only, marriage is about, lo- uh, we, uh, we water down that covenant of marriage and love is only defined by who, uh, well, who we love is irrelevant. That's probably a better way to put it. Pressures to conform such as these can creep into God's church if we don't heed the warnings of the past. That's what Jude's saying. All right, Jude continues to reassure his readers of God's judgment on these godless people in verses 8 to 13. So that's in, we're actually on point four. Uh, sorry, I skipped a little thing there. Uh, point four, godlessness will be judged. So v- verse 8, in, this, in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, uh, reject authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, now again, Jude, uh, quoting a Jewish text here and presuming his readers would have known this and understood this. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So, (laughs) it's a bit tricky, not entirely sure, all the details here, but these men were taking taking the law into account in their own hands as they ignored, ignored it in their immorality. The point seems to be that even the great archangel Michael would not take the law into his own hands. So he left it up to God. I think it's worth pausing for a moment to, to address Jude's use of these Jewish apocryphal texts. So namely the book of Enoch. And you can still, obviously, you can still find it and buy it. Um, <coughs> and we, we, we come across this, um, the, the book of Enoch more specifically in a, in a couple of verses time. Should we question this use? Should we question it? And does it make it non-scriptural, quoting an apocryphal book like this? Uh, I think no. Let me explain why. Um, Think of it this way. It's like when a a preacher um, quotes John Calvin. John Calvin, a very well-known reformer uh, in the 16th century and, um, and a great theologian and so on. Sometimes I quote, Calvin soon. So if a preacher quotes John Calvin, he's not saying that Calvin is God's word, but he is saying, but he's using Calvin's words to help us understand something which scripture says. So the book of Enoch was a book that this community, it seems, knew very well and highly valued it as well. Uh, quoting from it helped them understand scriptural truth. So in the context of scripture, Verses 14 and 15 in Jude, it's a direct quote. Verses 14 and 15 is still God's word, but if we took it out of Scripture, back into the context of the book of Enoch, then it would no longer be so. Okay, let's go to verse 10. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. What things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals... These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain 
They have rushed for profit in Balaam's error. They have destroyed in they've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. You've got to read Numbers 10 11 to catch up with that if you want to, and Numbers 24. These men are blame are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Woo, how about that? There's some words, aren't they? Powerful words. Now, time permits us really to um, investigate all them fully, but the warning is clear. There's nothing good about these people. And their judgment should come as no surprise. So, verses 14 to 15. Uh, 14 to 19. It was predicted in the book of Enoch, verse 15, as Judah interprets the coming of the Lord in the book of Enoch with the coming of Jesus returning to judge. And it was predicted in the words of the apostles, uh, verses 17 to 18, that such people would follow their own ungodly desires and attempt to divide the church. So don't be surprised that such people exists. We ought to, as Paul writes in, in 2 Timothy 3, um, about such false teachers, he says, but mark this, this is going to be typical of the last days. And the last days, the period that Jude was writing in, that Paul lived in, and that um, we live in as we wait for Jesus to return. These people are grumblers. See, complaining and grumbling has no place in God's church. Uh, scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Uh, but here's the key to the problem. Look at verse 19. These are men who divide, who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. They cannot understand nor even live the life of following Jesus, for they do not have the Spirit of God. The way they behave makes complete sense when we see this. So that first reading we had from um, 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, fleshes this out a little bit. He says, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And can understand them because they are dis- discerned only through the Spirit. That it, they don't have the Spirit of God and it makes sense in their behaviour. It makes sense in the way they, um, they live. Okay, let's go to the climax of, the little, of this little letter. These are wonderful verses. Verse 20, uh, it's a strong contrast. The start of verse 20 says, but you. It, the but is so important. In the English... What we'd probably want to say, but it looks a bit funny in, in the actual words, but we want to say, but you, and then exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation it, It's almost shouting out, but you, you are different. I've spoken about these people here, and, and they're not so good. <laughs> Watch out for them. And then he says, but you, you are different. You have the Spirit of God. You are different. So, uh, verse, verse 20. But you, dear friends... The other translation of course says beloved. I like that word too. So dear friends, beloved, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's two things to focus on there. We don't have a lot of time, but um, uh, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, there's something that we do. It's why church is so important to continue to be committed to it. It's why reading your Bible is so important, having those gospel conversations with people. But prayer is also important too, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think we get a clue. It's not really a clue. I think an explanation from Ephesians chapter 6. 
Ephesians 6 helps us here. Uh, verse 17, it's the, 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 um, uh, the armour of God passage. Take the helmet of salvation which, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Notice the link between the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, and then praying in the Spirit. They're together. In fact, you should ignore the paragraph, really. It, the, in, in the actual original, it just runs into each other. There's no paragraphs or numbers or anything like that in the original Greek. They run into each other. In other words, Paul defines what it means to pray in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is when our prayers are directed by the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Okay, back to Jude, Jude verse 21. So keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Now let's go to verse 22. These words are, are just wonderful, comforting words that this letter finishes with. They're loving words. Loving words for God's church. Directions for God's church as we love each other. Be merciful with those who doubt. I wonder if we're like that. Those who struggle. Be merciful with those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. I don't know, we might just say, look after each other. Watch out for each other. Who hasn't come to church for a while? Give them a phone call. Go and visit them. Uh, encourage them. Be merciful to them. Show mercy mixed with fear. Uh, the fear of the Lord, I think it was referred to here. Um, uh, the, the, the fear of the fact that God will judge. That's, that's part of understanding that, I think. Uh, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. There's, a, there's a, a, a phrase that goes around Christian circles sometimes which says we, we, love, the, we love the sinner but hate the sin. It's not a perfect um, phrase but it's, but it's not too bad. Uh, we, we, love those, um, we love those who are struggling... Uh, snatching them from the fire, those who doubt, uh, but we hate the sin that stains us. And finally, these words of protection and comfort for God's church. Look at verse 24 with me. I think I've got it on the screen, actually. To him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you before his glorious th uh, presence without fault and with great joy. That's what Jesus does. And we trust in him. He stands in our place and presents us before God without fault and with great, and, and this is with great joy, Jesus does it. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words today. But they are a challenge and they're a warning as well and we must heed that. But there's, there's, um, there's these wonderful words at the end that as we trust in you, we are presented, we trust in the, the, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus, we are presented before you, God, as um, without fault, uh, are perfect in your eyes. We thank you for that. We thank you that Jesus keeps us. We thank you that we are loved by you. And we pray today for those who uh, may not know this. We pray, pray today is a day that we would turn to you and turn away from 
our lives of not following you, instead to follow you and respond um, to your love and mercy to us. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.